0: And just a moment, I'm going to let Richard come up and talk to you uh, more about his book. I have a copy in my hand, "The Validity of the Bible in an Age of Skepticism: Reliable Truth." So we are the first bookstore in the world to have the copy of the book. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It went out yesterday. Yeah. It went out yesterday, but we the first know. store to have it, right? No. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Reliable truth. It's in the bookstore. <laughs> First to heaven. So, uh, without any further to do, then uh, Richard, I'll just in, in, invite you up uh, and let us pray for Richard. Uh, dear Lord, we uh, pray that you would give a inspiration of Holy Spirit to your servant Richard. That you would give him a a humble conviction. That you would breathe the Holy Spirit into his mm. into his heart and into his mind, getting registered thought expression and May his words be acceptable unto us, uh, and may we uh, listen with open hearts that we may, in the final analysis, come to know and to believe that your holy word in the scripture is indeed reliable truth. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, praying. Um,
1: I hope you'll uh, kind of bear with me. I've, I'm getting over a cold, and uh, my physician tells me that this cough that I have is going to linger for a week or so. so um, I want to start this morning, I want to read to you a, uh, an incident. I don't know whether it's true or not. Uh, Robbie Zacharias shares it. Um, but it's a, I think it's a great introduction to what I want to uh, uh, share with you this morning. <clears throat> he said, a student was finishing up his Ph.D. by writing his dissertation. He did not, however, like how dissertations were judged. He says, in his paper, instead of using credible sources, he would make a profound statement and say, as told to me by a waiter at a Fifth Avenue restaurant. (laughs) And then he would make a statement, as told to me by a taxi driver, all verbal references to someone he had talked to. His professor confronted him on this practice and said, you can't make statements like this in a dissertation. You have to have written references or footnotes. It's got to be verified. The student asked, why? Why do you have to have written references? Why does it have to be written if I got it from a waiter or a taxi driver who spoke to me? He was trying to make a mockery of the dissertation process. The professor said, well, that's all right if that's the way you feel. I'm just trying to figure out where you're coming from. On the day of graduation, the professor informed him that he had passed him. We're going to award you your Ph.D., he said, but we're not going to give it to you in writing. He said, you get no diploma, just take my word for it. (laughs) Now, I share this because, you know, documentation and having good records is crucial when it comes to history and truth propositions. And this morning, I thought that I would share with you uh, some thoughts on the historical record. Probably one of the most respected... Books that's ever been written on the religions of the world is a book that was written by a Houston Smith. sold well over a million copies. and Bill Moyer says it's the best book on comparative religion because it's so objective and it's so respectful of all the world religions. But what's so interesting is when you get to the section on Christianity, This is what he says, and and Smith was a very uh, well-educated man. I did some research on him and seemed to have no real religious leanings. He was just an objective author, and he says this about Christianity. He says, I quote, Christianity is basically a historical religion. That is, it is founded not on on abstract principles, but in concrete events, actual historical happenings. And he doesn't say that about any of the other world religions that are found in the book. You see, the Bible, unlike other religious literature, is not centered in a series of moral, spiritual, and liturgical teachings. But on what God did in history and what He revealed in history. This is why Peter Moore said, Christianity is the only world religion to make spiritual truth depend on historical events a number of years ago i'm not sure if you're familiar with paul Tillich. i remember when i was at swanee we would read uh, we read him in our one of our religion classes he uh he had a uh he hosted a conference in asia with various buddhist thinkers and during the conference he asked a very simple question to these scholars He says, what if by some fluke, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, had never lived and turned out to be some type of fabrication? He said, what would be the implications for Buddhism? He said, the scholars all agreed that if Buddha had not existed, it really wouldn't matter. He says, the reason they concluded is because Buddhism should be judged as an abstract philosophy, a system for living. They said it did not matter where the teaching originated. You know, when you read the Gospels, one of the things that you often see is that Jesus is confronted, and He says by the religious leaders, and they would ask Him, give us a sign. We've heard about all these miracles that you're doing, these wonderful works. Give us a sign. Do something spectacular. And that word sign comes from the Greek word that means... And a testing miracle. And of course, he never does. You know, I've often thought what I would do if I had been in his shoes and been asked and challenged like that. But you know, he would often make reference to the fact that there is going to be a great sign. Sometimes they were kind of cryptic when he was saying they didn't quite get it. You know, he'd say, tear this temple down and three days later I will build it back. He would make reference to his death and resurrection as the great sign. Notice, notice, it wasn't going to be any kind of scientific discovery or great philosophical argument. The sign Jesus says that he would give would be a single event that would pl- take place really at the end of his lifetime, and it would be a, a historical event. I will die, and three days later I will rise and as philosopher jn J. anderson declared if this event did take place it is the supreme fact of all of history and every person should adjust their life to it if it happened if it is a true historical event so what i'm saying is that the sign of the attesting miracle that jesus said he would provide could not be could not be proven in a scientific lab or with a philosophical argument, it would have to be proven historically. Which leads me to talk about the nature of historical proof. And to do this, I'm going to share with you an event that took place in my life 47 years ago. 47 years ago this February. I was in the sixth grade. I played in a basketball game. I went to Highlands Day, it's now called Highlands, and we were playing a team called McElwain. And to be quite honest, McElwain was not very good. Now, I was an okay, average basketball player. I I tell my boy, I could shoot, I just couldn't dribble. And you know, you have to dribble to to be able to shoot. Um, But this was one of those days, if you ever played basketball, maybe if you're a golfer, it was one of those days that everything went right for you. Every shot that I launched went in. Then I ended it, I scored 20 points. I'm not sure I ever scored in double figures other than that one game. And so that's why it's so vivid in my memory. Now, let me ask you this question. How would you prove that? Or how could I prove that to you? What if if someone approached you and said, I'm going to pay you money to go out and prove... That Richard scored 20 points 47 years ago in that game of Highlands versus McElwain. What would you do? I mean, you wouldn't go down to UAB and, and ask their researchers to help you. You wouldn't, again, you wouldn't go to a philosophy class and say, can we figure this out and prove this by philosophical argument? You would have to do historical inquiry. For instance, you might start by going to certain people that knew me when I was a kid, and said, did he play basketball? And they would tell you, yeah, he loved to. He was always in the backyard shooting baskets. You could go to Highlands, and let's assume they have the records. Was he a student there in 1966? Did they have a basketball team? Did Michael Wayne have a basketball team? Then let's say you go to some of my teammates, eyewitnesses. Billy Pritchard was the star of our team. You could go ask him. (laughs) And we had several other... In fact, I think all of our teammates are still alive. You could go and ask them. And let's just assume they remember very well that day. Yeah, he was out of his mind. He couldn't miss. And then let's say this was a Shades Valley YMCA-sponsored basketball league. Let's just assume that in the In the basement of the Shades Valley Y, they have all the records, all the scoring books of the games that were played in the history of the Shades Valley Y. And you go to 1966, the scorebook, February, you see Highlands against McElwain. you see the name Simmons, eight, let's see, nine baskets, two free throws, 20 points. Let me ask you this question. At this point, do you think it would be reasonable to conclude that I scored 20 points 47 years ago against McElhane Elementary. You see, this is what historical inquiry is all about. This is how you prove something historically. The famous historian John Warwick Montgomery said that in the, hysteri- in the historical arena, we have to accept probability in historical judgments based on the historical records and the evidence that is available. You see, Christians believe that as, as wonderful as Jesus' life and teachings were, they are meaningless if they are not historically true. In fact, isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? That if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the Christian faith is worthless, and we will die in our sins. In fact, because of, because of this, because of this implication, Many a scholar has set out to prove that the resurrection never really happened, knowing if they could, they could debunk the Christian faith. The problem is they've never been able to do it. I know of at least three or more scholars, Frank Morrison, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, all who set out to disprove that the resurrection ever happened, and all three of them ended up becoming Christians in the process. You see, for centuries, scholars have approached the Bible as they would any other ancient historical text. They ask the questions any historian would ask. Did this event actually take place? Did it happen as described? What are the sources? What evidence is available to examine? And these are all legitimate questions. They're questions that I began to ask as I mentioned last week, a little over 30 years ago, and I tell you what happened, I was at a used book sale, and there was this old book on Roman history. And as I was thumbing through it, really during the light, during the time when Jesus lived, I saw a section on Tiberius Caesar. And as I read through it, it says he was the emperor of Rome. From 15 A.D. to 37 A.D. And that kind of clicked in my mind. In fact, ironically, that was in the gospel reading this morning, if you'll remember. And this was right at the time when Jesus was starting His ministry, around 30 A.D. Tiberius would have been emperor for about 15 years. And then you read what Luke the historian says in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. He says, now it was in the 15th year... In the reign of Tiberius Caesar. You can do the math on that. And that struck me for the first time is the is the Bible in harmony with secular history. And as I as I was reading this it it kind of changed me. It made me realize, it made me curious, and to really kind of set out on this path to do the research on the work that I'm presenting you now and that's that's found in the book. Now, I need to mention that as, as much as the Bible involves history, it's not just a history book. It involves spiritual truth as well. For instance, if you read a parable, we're not wondering if that event really took place. What we're asking is, what is the spiritual lesson, what is the spiritual truth embedded in the parable? Yet on the other hand, when you read, as we read this morning in Luke 3, that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, you expect a high degree of historical accuracy from the biblical text. Now before I move forward, I I want to go back and read to you The first four verses in Luke chapter 3. Excuse me, this is Luke 1. This is the first four verses of the book of Luke. I want you to listen to him and listen to the way he approached his writing. He said, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word..." It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I don't know about you, but that's impressive. I mean, this isn't some mystical writer. He's writing about what he discovered through the historical inquiry that he had basically been involved with. He was seeking to investigate everything carefully and to present it in consecutive order. And Theophilus, most people think, was a wealthy Roman Christian, maybe a benefactor who supported Luke in his work as a historian and on these missionary journeys that you read about in the book of Acts. But what, this is what strikes me are these words in verse 4. Listen to this. That you may know the exact truth... It seems clear that those who wrote the historical books of the New Testament, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, were indeed very interested in history. They saw their responsibility was to describe real people and real events. They clearly were concerned with accuracy and were very, very precise in their details. And furthermore, three of the writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, were eyewitnesses to Jesus, His ministry, and His resurrection. And they were men of great integrity. Dr. Craig Blomberg, who most people consider to be probably one of the country's foremost authorities on the history of Jesus' life, says this, In the lives of the disciples, we see them reporting the words and actions of a man who called them to as exacting a level of integrity as any religion has ever known. They were willing to live out their beliefs even to the point that 10 of the 11 remaining disciples were put to grisly deaths, which shows great character. In terms of honesty, in terms of truthfulness, in terms of virtue and morality, these people had a track record that should be envied. C.S. Lewis, who I think is probably one of the most logical and greatest thinkers in in the history of, 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 let's say, the modern church. He stepped back and made this observation. It's brilliant. Listen to what he says. You have two possible views of the gospel accounts. Just two. He says this. Either this is reporting of events that actually took place, and this reporting is as close to the facts as possible, or some unknown writer in the 1st or 2nd century without any known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic fiction they would have to come up with a very conscious and very deliberate system of lies he says they would have they would then have to write it up and somehow send it around the roman empire and then those involved in spreading the lies, the disciples, would go out and die for these lies. And he says, if you, if you read the history of the church, it is hard to believe that Jesus' followers deliberately wrote lies, then died for those lies, and then some huge movement followed that eventually transformed the Roman world, and that it became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine. I think he's right. It's either one or the other. And before moving on to something else, I think it's important to realize, I want to re- really emphasize this. So many of the writers did not say, I heard that this happened. Again, they were eyewitnesses. As Peter himself said in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, a common question that I think people ask, and, and it's legitimate, is why are, not, why are there not more non-biblical historians who lived during that time who wrote about Jesus? Why is it we just have the, the gospel writings, those found in the Bible? Well, I have two responses. The first is that uh, Jesus lived in a very unimportant colony in the Roman Empire called Palestine. It was an agrarian region. It wasn't like Greece. It was a place where few people could read or write. They depended on the Jewish religious leaders for that. And, of course, the Jewish religious leaders did not look favorably upon Christ However, there were some ancient Jewish documents that refer to Jesus as a sorcerer who led the Jews astray. In fact, a, a, a Dr. Wilcox, who wrote a book called Jesus in Light of His Jewish Environment, says this, the Jewish traditional literature, although it mentions Jesus only quite sparingly, supports the gospel claim that he was a healer and miracle worker, even though it ascribes these activities to sorcery. In addition, it preserves the recollection that he was a teacher and that he had disciples, five of them, and that at least in the earlier rabbinic rabbinic period, not all of the sages had finally made up their mind that he was a heretic or a deceiver. As Craig Blumberg says, this acknowledges that Jesus really did works of wonders, although the Jewish writers dispute the source of his power. Now, my second response is this, that there were, in fact, a large number of non-biblical historians who lived during this time who did, in fact, write about Jesus. In fact, in his book, The Verdict of History, historian Gary Habermas details a total, a total of 39 ancient sources documenting the life of Jesus. He said some of these were Christian sources and some of these were not. But to put this into perspective, there are only nine ancient sources, nine, that mention Tiberius Caesar. And this was a guy who was, he was in power for 22 years, Roman emperor, mentioned nine times, 39 sources, non-biblical they talk about the life of Christ. Now, we've got limited time, so I'm just going to, I'm going to just share a couple with you because there's the, the ending, I think, is really powerful and you need to hear. But three, just, for instance, three historians, this is all documented in the book. The first, Cornelius Tacitus, born in 57 A.D., he's considered the greatest historian of the Roman Empire. In fact, the Cambridge Book of Ancient History says Tacitus' writings are by far the most comprehensive and reliable ancient source of information on the Roman government during the reign of Tiberius. Tacitus wrote a history of Rome, and at the time of Nero, he wrote this about the emperor's horrific decision to burn Rome down. Listen to what Tacitus says. He says, therefore, to stop the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty A class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Christ, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the procurator procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time only to break out afresh, not only in Judea, the home of the plague, but in Rome itself where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. And so what you see here is Tacitus corroborates the existence of Jesus. His followers are called Christians. He was executed by Pontius Pilate, and he lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Justin Martyr lived from 65 A.D. to 110 A.D. This is the way he describes the early church. He says, On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together to one place of all those who live in cities... Or in the country, in the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets, are read as long as time permits. Now, Martyr was a Christian. He was a Christian historian. And in his writing, he often quotes the Gospels. And when he quotes the Gospels, he would begin with his citation with these important words It is written. It is written. And so therefore, you see, at a very early date, the Gospels were recognized to have spiritual authority in the church. Now, probably one of the most interesting writings about Jesus comes from a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. He was born right after Jesus died. Now, he wrote... Probably most one of the most famous books of antiquity called the the it was called the Antiquities of the Jews. He's probably touted as the greatest Jewish historian to ever live, and in the Antiquity of the Jews, he wrote some words that <clears throat> have caused a lot of controversy. In fact, I had a discussion. Some of you may know uh, Warren Lightfoot Senior. We have, he gives a, a wonderful presentation on the resurrection. We. We've had some discussions on whether these words were actually Josephus. They were his words, but there seemed to be a couple of interpolations. Let me read it to you. This is really powerful. It says, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. Now, people think that maybe... Josephus didn't say this because he was Jewish. And he wouldn't say that he was the Messiah because if you read in his book, what he really says is that, that Jesus' followers believed he was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those that in the first place came to, who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him still to this day have not disappeared. Again, on the third day, he appeared to them restored. What most historians think it says is he appeared to his disciples restored. But regardless, history recognizes that these words came from Josephus. And Edwin Yamochi, who Lee Strobel says is is one of our country's leading experts in ancient history, says this about this passage. He says, Josephus corroborates important information about Jesus, that he was the martyred leader of the church in Jerusalem, that he was a wise teacher who had established a wide and lasting following, despite the fact that he'd been crucified under Pilate at at the instigation of some of the Jewish leaders. And what he says is, what's interesting, if we had no Bible to go on, let's say that they would have truly been able to eliminate the Bible. He says, and all we had were ancient, secular history to go by. He says, this is what we would know about Jesus. Jesus. He lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus. He says, Yamochi says, if you put this all together... You've got the persuasive evidence that corroborates all of the essentials found in the biographies of Jesus. Even if you were to throw away every last copy of the Gospels, you still have a picture of Jesus that's extremely compelling. In fact, it's a portrait of the unique Son of God. Dr. Norman Geisler, who's written over 60 books, says this runs even deeper because of what it says about the New Testament. He says, here you have these ancient secular historians collectively revealing a storyline that's congruent with the New Testament record. Geisler says something else very interesting. He says, beginning in February of A.D. 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian ordered three edicts, edicts of persecution upon Christians because he believed that the existence of Christianity was breaking the covenant between Rome and her gods. The edicts call for the destruction of churches, all manuscripts and books, and the killing of Christians. He says hundreds if not thousands of manuscripts were destroyed across the Roman Empire during this persecution which lasted until 311 A.D. It lasted eight years. But even if Diocletian had succeeded in wiping out every biblical manuscript off the face of the earth, he could not have destroyed our ability to reconstruct the New Testament. Why? He says because the early church fathers... Men such as uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, or uh, Tertullian and others, quote the New Testament so much, 36,289 times to be exact, that all but 11 verses of the New Testament can be reconstructed just from the quotations from their writings. In other words, Geisler says, if you could go down to your local public library, check out the work of the early church fathers, and read nearly every, read, and read nearly the entire New Testament just from the quotations of it. So we not only have thousands of manuscripts, but thousands of quotations from the manuscripts. Now, there's another chapter in the book that really goes into detail on, uh, about ancient documents. I'm not going to share that with you next week because I want, to, I want to go into what I think is one of the most fascinating chapters, which is on the moral law. But as I conclude, I want to share this thought with you. In the New Testament, Luke includes the most eyewitness accounts, the details. And it's not surprising. He was a physician and he was a historian. And, of course, he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts which makes up about 20% of the New Testament. But in the second half of Acts, Luke was eyewitness to Paul and all of his journeys, his missionary journeys. And he displays, if you go back, in fact, read the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts, you see an incredible array of knowledge of local places, names, environmental conditions, customs, and circumstances. They could only be described by an eyewitness who was there. The classical scholar and historian Colin Hemmer chronicles Luke's accuracy in the book of Acts, verse by verse. And with incredible detail, in these last 16 chapters, he identifies 84 facts that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Now, I have listed those 84 facts in one of the appendixes of the books. if that's something that interests you. But it leads me to this thought, which I want to leave you with. And this is powerful. One of the greatest archaeologists in the Middle East was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Ramsey was an Oxford scholar. He was an archaeologist. He was an atheist. With parents who were atheists, but also who had great wealth. And Ramsey... Who received his doctorate at Oxford committed his entire life to archaeology in the Middle East. And he was convinced, as he set out, that he could undermine the validity of the Bible. And the way he set out to do it was to discredit the book of Acts. That was his goal. And after 30 years of diligent study, he realized he couldn't do it. Because he clearly recognized, he says, that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and these are Ramsey's own words, was exact down to the most minute details. And his diggings and then through his studies, Ramsey uncovered hundreds of artifacts which confirmed the historicity of, of the New Testament record. And then finally, in one of his books, he shocked the archaeological world by declaring that he'd become a Christian. Listen to what Ramsey said about Luke. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements as facts trustworthy. Listen to this. This author should be placed among the greatest of all historians. Now those are strong words. And they're important words. Because you need to remember where we started. Christianity is the only world religion where spiritual truth depends on the veracity of historical events. Y'all have been a terrific audience. Let me close with prayer. Father, we we are grateful that you have given us solid rock to build our faith upon. That you've given us not only a book that contains spiritual truth, but gives us an historical account of what took place in the past when you chose to enter history and send your son Jesus into the world. Lord, we're grateful that you, you don't leave us in darkness, but that you give us the light of the Scriptures that reveals so much to us about who you are. It reveals so much about life and has such great wisdom To impart to us. Most significantly, Lord, we thank you for the fact that not only you came in the world, but that you died for us. And that you demonstrated who you were by rising from the dead. And we're grateful that we have an accurate record of that that we can focus on, that we can build our lives upon. Lord, we're grateful for our church. We're grateful for uh, the leadership. I'm grateful for just all the the relationships the rich wonderful relationships that we have here at the Advent just ask your blessing on each of these people here today and their families it's in Christ's name we pray amen thank you